You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. And if you would please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. It's in your New Testament, so you get the guys' names, right? The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John then Acts, and then Romans, and go to Romans, and then go to chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the last few verses of chapter 9, and then into chapter 10. We are continuing our study today, which is called Saving Grace. This is our study through the letter to the Romans. So we are studying through the whole letter, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. That's how we, we generally like to study the Bible here at Whitefields, because that way we can get the whole context, and we get to understand everything that God has to say to us through this. We let God speak to us, and then we respond. So today we have come all the way. We've been journeying through Romans, and we are now in chapter 9. We looked at the first part last week, and we're going to be looking at the second part and into chapter 10 this week. Let's go ahead and begin our study this morning by reading uh, Romans chapter 9, starting verse 30 and into, verse, into chapter 10. If you need a Bible, go ahead and uh, put your hand in the air and one of our ushers will get you a Bible. Or if you want to follow along on your phone, we uh, encourage you to use the YouVersion Bible app. If you go into the menu, then uh, we've got some places in the menu there uh, where you can find our notes that are up on the screen and, and some other things as well. So um, let's go ahead and begin by reading our text in Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But the Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this, this good news, this gospel of Jesus Christ, this righteousness which comes from the outside, which is given to us as a gift of grace that we receive by faith, uh, and it's not based on our works and our righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would solidify this in our hearts, and that you would use this text this morning to speak into areas of our lives that need to be addressed. Lord, you know what those are. Thank you that you're here and that you speak to us through your word, and we pray that you would do that this morning, that we would hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of today's message is Understanding Israel, part two, uh, which is Receiving God's Grace. This is the second part of a three-part kind of like mini-series that we're doing within our study of Romans. And we're calling this mini-series within our series, Understanding Israel, because Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are all about explaining and understanding the role of Israel in the Bible and in God's plan of salvation. The first eight books, or first eight chapters of this letter. You know, some people might say, well, what, why is that? Paul's been talking about justification, all these things that God does for us in Christ, and now he just switches gears and talks about Israel? Not at all. I mean, it's not a total tangent 
whatsoever. This totally flows out of everything he's been saying. You see, for the first eight chapters of this letter, Paul has been talking to us about the matchless love of God, the good news of the gospel, that despite our sins, despite our shortcomings, God has saved us through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we can be sure of this salvation because God always keeps his promises and God has chosen us to be his people. If we are in Christ, Paul says, God has chosen you to be in Christ since before the foundations of the earth. And there's nothing on heaven or on earth that can separate you from the love of God. And that's really great. That's really encouraging, right? Except that somebody might come and they might say, yeah, those are all really nice things, but didn't God promise all those things to Israel as well? And now look at where they're at. There's a bunch of them who don't believe, who don't follow, who, who have rejected the Messiah. And so did God not keep his promises to them? And, and if God didn't keep his promises to them, then how do we know that God's going to actually keep his promises to us? I mean, weren't the Jews also God's chosen people? Didn't God also place his love on them? Didn't he promise to be faithful to them and see them through? And, and now, you know, if you look at them, there's so many who don't believe. So are those Old Testament promises still valid today? And, and if they're not, well, then that means that God doesn't actually keep his promises. And if God doesn't keep his promises to them, then who's to say that God will keep any of his promises to us? See, these questions about Israel are very important to everything that Paul has been saying up until now. And so they're very important for us to understand. In Romans chapter 9, as we looked at last week, Paul explained that the Jewish rejection of Jesus, he explained it in terms of God's sovereign plan. In other words, he said, God chooses one and doesn't choose another. And not everybody who's descended from Israel is part of the remnant of believing Israel who will be saved. God shows mercy to one and he doesn't show mercy to another. Is that fair? And he said, yes, because by definition, Mercy is not about fairness. Mercy is beyond fairness. No one deserves mercy. It's a gift. See, what we deserve is judgment because we've fallen short, but God in his great mercy has shown mercy to some. Not arbitrarily. He doesn't just eeny, meeny, miny, mo, but he does it according to his plan. So the answer Paul gives us in chapter nine for, for the Jewish rejection of Jesus is he says, God is sovereign. God has a plan, and we trust in that. But now here, starting in verse 30 of chapter 9, Paul really shifts gears. And what he's going to do is he's going to give us a different perspective on Israel. And what he's going to say is, well, here's another perspective on it. They chose to reject the salvation that God sent them. They chose, and they bear the responsibility for that. Now, we often wonder, don't we? Like, like we hear these things, like that we say that God is in complete control. But, but what is the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility? Because the Bible teaches both. In, in theological terms, this is what we call an antinomy or an antinomy or however you pronounce it. I'm not actually sure. Maybe you know. But an antinomy is where there are two things which seem to be mutually exclusive, and yet they are both true at the same time. And one Christian writer, Charles Simeon, he explained it this way. I thought this was very, very good. He said, as wheels in a complicated machine may move in opposite directions and yet serve a common end, so may apparently opposite truths be perfectly reconcilable with each other and equally serve the purposes of God in the accomplishment of man's salvation. 
So there are two big issues that are addressed here in this chapter that we're going to look at. Number one, we're going to talk about why many people miss the gospel. And number two, we're going to talk about your role in God's plan. So why many people miss the gospel and your role in God's plan. The first part, why many people miss the gospel. Paul starts off in chapter 9, verse 30 in this section. And he says, I want you to think about the irony of this situation. Here's the situation. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, but the Jews who spend their whole lives pursuing righteousness have not attained righteousness. It's ironic. These Jewish people, as a nation, they have been waiting for thousands of years preparing for the Messiah. And then he comes and they completely miss him. On the other hand, Gentile people who weren't even looking for the Messiah, like they didn't even know like that the, the Messiah is a thing. And, and they found him. It's ironic. It's topsy-turvy. It's crazy. How did that happen? How did the Jews miss it? And now, I've certainly felt that way before. Maybe you have too. So I'll read the Old Testament. I'll study the Bible. I study what the Bible says about the Messiah and who he will be and what he will do. And I read things like Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem to a virgin. Very clear. Psalm 22 describes in detail a crucifixion, and that this is what will happen to the Messiah. He will be crucified. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. And you study it, and what you find yourself asking the question, the more you study the Old Testament, is how could they have possibly missed this? It just seems so clear, seems so obvious. Now, what we mentioned last week is that in Acts chapter 6, it tells us that it wasn't all the Jews who missed this. And so don't think that it was all of them. Acts chapter 6 tells us that a huge portion of the city of Jerusalem believed in Jesus, including many of the priests, the people who were closest to Judaism. But notice this, not all of the Jews believed in Jesus. And if you look around the world today, there are about 15 million Jews in the world. Most of them are non-religious. The great majority are non-religious. About half a million of them are Messianic Jews. In other words, Jews who believe in Jesus, who are Christians. And then they have, you have several million Jews who are practicing Jews. They actually practice Judaism. And you look at the Jewish people back then, and you look at practicing Jews today, and you can't help but wonder, how do they not see it? Like, why, why do they look at these things? They read the scriptures, but they don't see it. It seems so obvious. How could you miss it? And Paul gives the answer here in chapter 9, verse 32. He says, here's why. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. In other words, a lot of people in the world are pursuing righteousness, but there's two ways to pursue righteousness, either on your own merits or by receiving it as God's gift that you receive by faith. He says this is the key issue. Righteousness comes by faith, not by works. And this was the stumbling point. This is the stumbling point for the Jewish people. Look at what he says again in, in verse 31. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching their law. But, verse 30, the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained righteousness by faith. So this is the key issue. The message of the gospel is that righteousness, a, a right standing before God, is not something that can be earned. It's not something that can be merited. You can't get it by being a really good person. You can't get it through being very religious. 
You can't get it, you can't earn it, period. A right standing with God is something that can only be received as a gift which God gives you and you receive it by faith. And this, Paul says in verse 32, this is why the Jews missed it. This was their stumbling point. He says there in verse 32, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. He's talking about Jesus. He's saying that Jesus is a stumbling stone. Then he quotes a quote from Isaiah. He says, Behold, I am laying a, in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus is called the rock of offense and the stone of stumbling, but whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, you can build your life upon him or you will stumble over him. And this is why many people, not just the Jews, miss the gospel. This is the key issue. Just as we talk about it, how is it that people can look at the gospel, this word gospel, it means good news. That's the core message of Christianity. It's not good advice about what you need to do for God to accept you. It's good news about what he has done for you in Christ. And so how is it that people can look at this good news and say, no thanks? Just like we look at the Jews and we wonder, how could you miss it? We look at people who, who hear the gospel and it doesn't make sense. How could you look at this and not want it, right? Like if the gospel is such good news, then why does anybody pass it up? I mean, think about it. Here's God and he's offering you heaven instead of hell. He's offering you a relationship with him. He's offering to forgive your sins and put his spirit inside of you to fill you with his power to live a victorious life. And people look at that and they say, eh, no thanks. And you're like, how could you say that? Why? And they say, well, I'm fine on my own. I don't need that. And it's the same issue with the Jews. The reason why many miss the gospel is the same reason why the Jews miss Jesus. Because many of us believe that we can do it on our own. In other words, if we were to stand before God today, many people believe that God would, would look at us and he would consider the good things we've done and he would look at your heart and see your, your good intentions and he would say, well, I can see that you're a pretty good person and you have pretty good intentions, so come on into heaven. And yeah, I know you've done some things that you shouldn't have, but who hasn't? All in all, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, so come on in. In other words, the stumbling block for the Jews is the same reason that many people miss the gospel today, and this, that is this. They think that they can earn God's acceptance by being good enough. The problem is the Bible makes it very clear that that is not the case. And this is why Jesus is a stumbling block for many people. Verse uh, 33, Paul is quoting from Isaiah, and he calls Jesus the rock of offense. In other words, the gospel, the message of the cross, that Jesus died for our sins, that we're so sinful that God himself had to die for us in order to save us, that offends our sense of self-righteousness. Because what it tells us is that we don't have what it takes in order to save ourselves. We need a divine act of mercy in order for us to be saved. This, uh, this past week, I was up in Estes Park all week. I was teaching at a Bible college, and I taught through, one of, I taught two classes. One of them I taught through Genesis. So I taught uh, 15 hours through the book of Genesis for about 40 students. It, it was a great time. And as we went through Genesis, I, I, I recognized this again as I went through the book, that this is a recurring theme, that salvation is not a reward for good behavior. Salvation is a gift that is received by faith. Now, this is Old Testament stuff. This is foundational first book of the Bible stuff, and it teaches the same thing, that salvation is not a reward that you get by good behavior. It is a gift that you receive by faith. And there are several stories in the book of Genesis which teach this principle, but one that stuck out to me this past week as I was teaching through Genesis again was chapter 20. Do you remember what happened in Genesis 20? Feel free to read it if you want, but I'll, I'll kind of give you a recap. 
here's what happens. We have Abraham. He's the father of faith. He's the patriarch. He's the, the Bible calls him the friend of God. He is a believer who lives in the midst of an unbelieving society, right? He's the one who knows God and walks with God in the midst of people who don't. And in Genesis chapter 20, here's what happens. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, travel into a neighboring region that's ruled by this kind of warlord guy named Abimelech. And Abraham says to his wife, Sarah, okay, Sarah, so like this area we're going, these people, they're not believers like, like we are, right? Like they're just uh, heathens. They, they probably are, are very immoral people. Um, and, you know, they're probably going to want to kill me so that they can get you. Um, and so he says, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lie to them and I'm going to tell them you're my sister. And then I'm going to sell you to them as a kind of sex slave. And she's like, wait a second, so these people are, are bad, right? And he's like, yep, that's right. That's why I'm going to lie to them and then sell you to them. And she's like, okay, so, so you're going to sell me to the murderous heathens because they're bad and scary. And he's like, precisely. And you're going to sell me into their harem of concubines so that you can be safe and you're just going to let me be part of their harem of concubines. And he's like, Exactly. Now let's go do it. And so they do it and they go along. And, and that night, Abimelech has this dream in which he finds out in this dream, God tells him in this dream that Sarah is Abraham's wife, so he better not touch her. And you know what Abimelech says? He says, hey, I am a man of integrity. I would never touch another man's wife. And God's like, I know, that's why I told you. And so I know that you're an upstanding guy, so I want you to not sleep with this woman, and I want you to, uh, you know, send her back to her husband in the morning. So in the morning, Abimelech, this unbeliever, right, this, this nasty heathen, supposedly, he, he gets up and he goes to Abraham and he confronts him. He says, hey man, what the heck, right? Like, I'm a man of integrity. I would never sleep with another man's wife. And you lied to me. I don't lie to people. And, and Abraham gives, I, I love this. He says, well, let me explain. The reason I lied to you is because I knew that you were a godless person. And so therefore I sold you my wife, you know, and I lied to you because I know you guys don't believe in God. And I figured you're bad and evil and stuff. And it's an incredible story because, see, it doesn't fit into our, our paradigm of good and bad. Abraham's supposed to be the good guy, but he's not acting like a good guy. And, and he even thinks that he's morally superior to these other people over here who don't believe in God, but he's not. They have more integrity than he does. Now, it's not supposed to be that way, but, but oftentimes this is the reality of life. Abraham thinks that he's morally superior to these unbelievers, but he's not acting with any integrity whatsoever. Why is that story even in the Bible? Like maybe, you know, if, if they wouldn't have put it in the Bible, we would never know about it. Like, and he could have just forgot that whole terrible episode. But God puts it in the Bible. Why? Here's the reason. Because back in Genesis chapter 15, just before that, there was this incredible statement. God made these promises to Abraham. He said, Abraham, you're going to take my hand and you're going to walk with me. I've chosen you. You're mine. And it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's righteousness, his right standing with God, it wasn't based on his morality. It wasn't based on anything that Abraham did. It was a status which was sovereignly bestowed upon Abraham and Abraham received it by faith. In other words, if righteousness was based on being a person of integrity, then Abimelech would be right with God and Abraham wouldn't. 
if salvation is based on good behavior, Abimelech's going to heaven and Abraham's going to hell. But we see this recurring theme throughout all of Genesis that sometimes people who don't know God act with integrity and sometimes people who do know God act without integrity. And it shouldn't be that way. But the reason the Bible includes these stories is because it wants to drive home in a very radical, surprising way this fundamental point that the righteousness of God is not something you can earn. It's not something you can merit. It's something you must receive and you receive it by faith. It's not based on your works. It's based on Jesus' works on your behalf. And for a lot of people, that's a stumbling block. They have a hard time wrapping their head around that and really taking hold of it. They say things like, so let me get this straight. You're saying, like, I could be a murderer, and, and all I have to do is just believe in Jesus, and I'll go to heaven, but a person who's lived a good life and, and is very charitable and kind, but they don't believe in Jesus, they go to hell. That doesn't seem fair at all. See, it's a stumbling point for many people, just as it was for the Jewish people, that salvation isn't based on works, but on Jesus's works on our behalf. See, what we've seen here in Romans, particularly in the first three chapters, is that everyone needs the gospel. We all need what Jesus has done for us, without exception, right? Whether you have lived a very moral life or whether you've lived a very immoral life, whether you've lived a religious life or an irreligious life, all of us have fallen short of God's perfect standards. And if God's perfect standard is called righteousness, then that means that we are unrighteous. Maybe you've not fallen short quite as badly as somebody else. Because that's the thing we always say. Look, I'm not perfect, but there are a lot of other people who are way worse than me. Maybe you haven't fallen short as badly as somebody else, but all of us have fallen short. It's like trying to jump over the Grand Canyon. Like you might be the best jumper in the world. You might be able to jump twice as far as the next best person but it's not going to be enough because that chasm that is between you and God, his righteousness and your unrighteousness is too great. What you need is not to jump on your own. What you need is for God to provide a bridge. Keep that in mind. We'll talk about that again in a minute. In chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire, my prayer for them, that's Israel, the Jewish people, of whom you might remember, Paul is ethnically Jewish himself. He says, my prayer for them is that they would be saved. Now, we saw in chapters 8 and 9, Paul talks so much about how he fully believes in the sovereignty of God, how he believes in predestination, and yet he prays for these people to be saved. He asks God to save these people. And I just want to ask you and, and challenge you with this. Is there somebody in your life who you can be praying for in the same way? Is there somebody in your life who you need to pray for their salvation, just like Paul prayed for the salvation of these people. I bet there is. And here's what I want to challenge you to do is whatever you're taking notes with right now or whether you're on your phone or taking notes, I want you to write down that person's name or maybe it's multiple people. And what I want you to do is I want you to place that somewhere where it's prominent, where you're going to see it. And I want you to be reminded of it. And I want you to be reminded to pray for that person just like Paul prayed for them in a concerted way for their salvation. He says in verse 2, For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul says this is the most heartbreaking thing. I know that these Jewish people, I know they're sincere. Because he said, I was in that same boat. I was sincere, but I, was, I came to realize that I was sincerely wrong. See, there's this Nike campaign right now. Have you guys seen it? It says, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. 
Believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. Now, I love the idea of, of truly being zealous for something to the point of sacrificing everything. Uh, but think about the sentiment of this. It, it really is kind of the mantra of our modern society, which is this. It doesn't matter what you believe. Just believe in something, anything, as long as you believe it with your whole heart and as long as you're zealous for it. Now, I just want to say, like, that is an unwise message. Because, look, you don't want to just believe in something, do you? You want to believe in the truth. You don't want to just believe in something. There are a lot of things out there to believe in. Like, there are people who believe that the earth is flat. And they believe it with their whole heart. Doesn't mean they're right. So, don't just believe in something. Believe in the truth. See, zeal without knowledge can actually be a very dangerous thing. I remember when my son was, was just two years old and we lived on this street. It wasn't a very busy street. Uh, we lived in Hungary and, and I was across the street doing some, some work in uh, this area, this grassy area. And my son saw me. He came out in front of the house, in front of our gate, and he saw me and he wanted to run across the street. But at that moment, there were cars coming down our street and, you know, very narrow and he couldn't see anything. And so my son, right, with perfect intentions zealous for his dad, just wanting to come and love me and hug me, wanting to be with his dad, perfect, pure intentions, starts running towards the street. Why? Because he doesn't have knowledge yet, knowledge of traffic, knowledge of what cars do when they hit you. And if someone hadn't been there to grab him and stop him, then he would have gotten himself hurt. See, zeal without knowledge can be a very dangerous thing. One time I was traveling, I remember, and I got sick with an infection. And there was a lady at this place I was at who was a nurse. And she said, look, I'm going to give you some medication. And she asked me some questions. She gave me this medication. Best of intentions, only wanting to help. And turns out, neither of us knew this, but turns out I was allergic to that medication. And I found that out very quickly. I had a bad reaction to it. See, she had pure intentions, but the result was still bad because it, it's not only intentions that matter. There's also the fact of truth. Truth matters as well. And we can have the best of intentions, be totally sincere, and yet be sincerely wrong. And so Paul says these people are zealous for God. They're sincere, but unfortunately their zeal is not based on knowledge. They're zealous for what they believe, but what they believe is incorrect. On this idea of zeal versus knowledge, before we go on, I just had this thought. I've been around a lot of Christians who were super zealous, but what they lacked was knowledge. They lacked knowledge of God's word. And so they were super zealous, they're very excited, but they lack knowledge. And what that leads to a lot of times, it leads to some weird doctrines, it leads to weird practices, often leads to people getting hurt uh, because they're very zealous, but what they lack is knowledge. And so what they need to do is add knowledge to their zeal. But on the other hand, I've met a lot of other Christians who have so much knowledge, but zero zeal. They've got all this knowledge of theology and doctrine, but they have very little or no zeal for God whatsoever. And ideally, what we want to have is both. We want to be zealous and have knowledge. See, our zeal drives us to want to know God more. And as we get to know God more, it, it gives us even more zeal for him. It's like fuel for the fire as we see who he is and how great he is. And it's this self-perpetuating cycle that begins. So I want to challenge you to ask yourself this question in all sincerity. Are you someone who needs to add knowledge to your zeal? Or are you someone who needs to add zeal to your knowledge? Ask yourself that question. He says in chapter 10, verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. 
In other words, rather than trying to prove our own merits and righteousness, we need to submit ourselves to God's righteousness. And it really is an act of submission. It's an act of submission to say, God, I'm going to stop trying to save myself. I'm going to stop trying to earn your, your favor and your blessings. I am going to receive your righteousness and submit to your righteousness. See, here's the thing. You can have all the right information, but it takes an act of submission in order to receive God's righteousness. Look at verse 4. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Does that mean that the Ten Commandments don't matter? Like now we can, now we're totally, we got a green light to murder, steal, uh, commit adultery, covet our neighbor's wife, like use God's name in vain. We can just do it all because there's no more law. It's not what he's saying. He's saying the law still has a role. It teaches us about the heart of God. It teaches us what God loves and what God hates so that as people who love God, we, we know we have a playbook for, for living in God's way. But what he says is it's the end of the law for righteousness. In other words, it's no longer the means by which we make ourselves acceptable to God. Rather, the means is by what Jesus did for us. That's what he said here in the next verse. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. He's quoting half of a verse here from the Old Testament, which the law says this, those who live by this must live by the law, but those who do not live by this will die. That's the implication. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Throughout this section, Paul is contrasting two Uh, ways of approaching God. Two ways of approaching God. On the one hand, there's a way of approaching God based on your performance, your merits. On the other hand, there is the way of approaching God through faith in what he has done for you in Jesus. And this is what differentiates Christianity from every other religion or belief system in the world. So if someone ever comes to you and says, you know, all the religions in the world, they all kind of just teach the same thing. They all just kind of teach similar morals and similar values. And so, you know, whatever you believe is fine. Well, again, that, that might be true. I actually think that is true with the exception of Christianity. I believe that Christianity is, is not religion, nor is it irreligion. It's something completely different. It's a way of relating to God by his grace. See, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion and every other belief system in the world. Every other religion, every other belief system basically says this. God is up here and you are down here. And if you want to work your way up to God, then you've got to work very hard. So follow these rules. Be a good moral person. Make a pilgrimage. Be reincarnated. Go to purgatory. Do penance. And if you do these things well enough and good enough and long enough, then maybe you can work your way up to God or you can earn his blessing upon your life and and hopefully earn eternal life. But Christianity says, no. It's not that you have to work hard to work your way to God, but that God has come to you. That's the message of the gospel. Not that you earn God's grace, but that you receive it. In Genesis 28, there's this interesting story. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So he's the grandson of Abraham. And Jacob is is running away. He's running away because his brother wants to kill him. And, And he's out in the middle of nowhere one night, and he lays down and goes to sleep under the stars, and he has this dream. And in this dream, he has a vision. 
And in this vision, heaven is opened up and there's a ladder which connects heaven and earth. And he sees angels descending and ascending on this ladder. And you wonder, wow, what is this? Or maybe you're like, I've heard that story, but I never understood it. What does it mean? Well, there's an old African-American spiritual song that says this, we are climbing Jacob's ladder. In other words, they thought their interpretation, their understanding was that they thought it meant that God has given us a ladder by which we may climb our way up to him in order to get to him, in order to reach him. And that's actually the same sentiment that we see in many Eastern religions, right? There's this idea of reaching stages of enlightenment and stages of getting near the divine, a staircase or a ladder, one stage at a time, all the way up to God. Except, see, that is not what this story is about. Because here's why. This ladder, Jacob never climbs the ladder. But you know what the ladder is used for? God comes down via that ladder to Jacob. Jacob never moves from where he's at there on earth, but God comes down to Jacob. And Jacob names that place Bethel, which means the house of God, because this is the place where God came to him and met him. Interesting, right? What gets more interesting, in the Gospel of John, it says that God is the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, in the person of Jesus Christ, God came to us and dwelt among us. Like in Jacob's story, God came down to us and dwelt with us. But here's the really cool part. Check this out. Later on in that same chapter, in John chapter 1, Jesus is talking to this guy named Nathaniel. He's a little bit skeptical. He's not sure he totally buys into this whole Jesus thing. And Jesus tells him this. He says, truly, Nathaniel, I say to you, you will see heaven open up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Wait a second. What did he just say? Jesus is referring back to the story of Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28, the ladder by which God comes down from heaven to earth, the ladder on which we see angels descending and ascending. But notice what Jesus says. He said, you will see angels ascending and descending on a ladder? No, on the Son of Man. In other words, on me. What Jesus is saying, hey, remember Jacob's ladder? I am Jacob's ladder. I am the bridge that spans the gap between heaven and earth. I am the bridge that spans the gap between God and humanity. And it's only through me that you can connect with God and dwell with him forever. See, every other religion is focused on methods by which you can work your way to God. And in this sense, Christianity is not a religion like the others. It's something altogether different, a way of relating to God through his grace. God has come to you, and what you must do is believe it in your heart and confess it with your mouth. And that brings us to the second major theme of this chapter, which we'll end with briefly. And that is this, your role in God's plan. Your role in God's plan. It says this, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is lowered over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What Paul's saying here is that God has a plan, but you have a responsibility. Once you've heard this message, once you've understood this message, now you need to embrace it by faith. What Paul's showing in this section is that Israel is responsible for their present condition. In verses 18, 19, and 20, he asks this question. Did they not hear the message? 
He says, yes, they heard it. They heard it very clearly. It was presented in the word of God. It was preached in their synagogues. Of course they heard it. They knew it. And he says, well, well, maybe they didn't understand it. Maybe they heard it, but they didn't understand it. Paul says, no, they did understand it. The issue is that they stubbornly refused to acknowledge it. Because by acknowledging it, it would have, it would have meant that they have to give up their self-righteousness. And they weren't willing to do that. On the other hand, there are a lot of Gentiles who had no problem whatsoever acknowledging that they were sinners and that they couldn't save themselves. And I think we can say this applies to many religious people today or even many non-religious people who are very moral. It can be very hard to submit to God's righteousness rather than trusting in their own. But the danger is that self-righteousness becomes a barrier between you and God. Paul concludes this chapter by quoting from Isaiah chapter 65, verse 2. He says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What he's saying is this. Israel is responsible for their present condition. They heard the gospel, they understood the gospel, but they didn't receive the gospel because of their own stubbornness, because of their own pride, their own self-righteousness you could ask the question, is Paul now contradicting everything he said in chapter 9, where he said that Israel's in the state they're in because of God's sovereign plan? No, what he's doing is just presenting the other side of the coin. See, both of these things are true. God is sovereign over all of history, and we human beings are responsible for what we do and the choices we make. And this antinomy, it drives us crazy intellectually, right? Like we want to figure it out. How does it work? How does God's sovereign plan work together with my choices and decisions? For example, you came here to church today. So I guess that was God's sovereign preordained plan that you would be here. But it didn't feel like it was preordained when you're trying to cram the kids in the car and put their seatbelts on and get here. But you know, it felt like a choice when you were getting out of bed this morning and you didn't feel like it. And you wonder, well, what if I decided not to come? Would that have been God's sovereign plan or would that have been my choice? Or what about when I was driving here and I was late, so I was going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit? Was that God's plan or was that my choice? And that guy I cut off and that red light I ran, was that God's plan or was that my choice? Did God choose these pants for me or did I choose these pants for myself? Who's responsible here? And we can drive ourselves crazy trying to figure it out. But here's what the Bible says. God is sovereign and you are responsible for your actions. And how those two work together is, is the thing, right? That's part of God's incredible majesty. It's part of what makes him God and us not. In chapter nine, the encouragement is this. God has a plan and you can trust in it. When things seem out of control and crazy, when you're scared, when you're worried, you can know God is sovereign and he's working out his good plan perfectly. But here in chapter 10, the message is this, the other side of the coin, God has a plan, but you have a part to play. You need to receive the grace of God to you. You need to embrace the gospel by faith. You need to submit yourself to God and his righteousness rather than trusting in yourself and your righteousness. And there's one final piece that I want to draw your attention to. And that's verses 14 through 17. It's called the missional mandate. And it says this, how will they call on him? in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. For they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
Not only do we have a responsibility to receive the gospel, we also have a calling from God and a responsibility to share the gospel with other people so they can hear it, so they can believe it. So that, because faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. And he says there, there are multiple stages in this, right? Like you can be a goer and a preacher or you can also be a sender. Both are important, both are needed, but we must be taking part in some level here, right? God could do it without us, couldn't he? He could do it with like a team of angels and they might even do a better job. They might be even better and more obedient and better speakers than we are. But God has called and chosen us. He sent us into the world to share the good news of the gospel with people so they can hear and believe and be saved. And I'll tell you this, the knowledge that God is sovereign, that emboldens us as we proclaim the gospel. See, here's why, because it means that it's not all on us. It means it's not all on your speaking ability or your rhetorical abilities. It means that God is sovereign. And so as we obey, we trust that he is also doing his work. And so God has a plan and we get to be part of it. The last four verses of this chapter are really key. It's this. See, we're reminded it's not just enough to hear the gospel. It's not just enough to understand the gospel. We also have to take the next step of receiving the gospel for ourselves and responding to it. And maybe that's what you need to do today. Maybe you're here today. You've never put your foot across that line and said, I put down my yes and I I believe the gospel. Maybe you say, but I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I don't know if if I really need to be saved. Again, listen to the words of this chapter. Don't let your self-righteousness become a barrier between you and God. Or maybe you're, you're here today and you've been a Christian for a long time, but you're realizing that self-righteousness has crept into your heart. You're recognizing that today, once again, you need to embrace the gospel of God's grace. Maybe you realize today that you have a lot of knowledge, but you don't have a lot of zeal. Wherever you're at today, I I pray for you that you would respond to the grace of God, that you would embrace the gospel, and you would take up this missional mandate to go into all the world and share the good news of what Jesus has done. Amen? Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us, Lord, that you were the first and the truest missionary who left his home to come to us to bring the good news of salvation to us, Lord, to bring salvation to us. And so, Lord, may we respond to the gospel this morning, both by receiving it, by, by ceasing to trust in ourselves and our merits, and, and by trusting in you wholeheartedly. And Lord, may we also respond to it by being those who say, I will take this message into the world, to my friends, family members, to those who need to hear it, this message of salvation through Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that it's not on our merits, because if it was, none of us would merit it. Thank you, Lord, that it was based on what you did for us. And we We embrace that, we rest in it, we trust in it today in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.